Baladhanantum allay yanqalibar rasulu wal mu'minuna ila ahlihim abadaw wa zuyyina thalika fi qulubikum wa zuyyina thalika fi qulubikum wa dhanantum dhanna وَمَنْ لَمْ يُؤْمِنْ بِاللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ فَإِنَّا عَتَدَنَا لِلْكَافِرِينَ سَعِيرًا But you thought that the messenger and the believers would never return to their families, ever, and that was made pleasing in your hearts. And you assumed an assumption of evil and became a people ruined. And whoever has not believed in Allah and his messenger, then indeed we have prepared for the disbelievers a blaze. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Season 6 of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this season, We are discussing 100 years of Middle Eastern history after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. This is episode 6-5, Ataturk and Turkey. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. The Allied powers occupy Anatolia after the Ottoman Empire signs the Armistice Agreement. British Prime Minister Lloyd George uses the Ottoman Sultan to carry out his plan to carve up Anatolia. Lloyd George declares, Turkey is no more, after the puppet Ottoman government signs the Treaty of Sevra. However, General Mustafa Kemal Pasha is leading a resistance movement against the occupation. And with that, let's discuss the Turkish War for Independence. If you'd like to support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content, then become a member of Islamic History Exclusive. We have two membership levels, one free and one paid. At the free level, you get access to Season 0, Season 1, and all bonus episodes. The paid membership level is only $48 a year and gets you everything in the free level plus additional content such as the story of Ibn Zubair, the life of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, and inshallah, much more to come. For more information, visit islamichistoryx.com. The Turkish War for Independence Mustafa Kemal and the Turkish nationalists signed a brief armistice with France after the Battle of Marash in early 1920. Nonetheless, the two sides continued to clash throughout southern Anatolia. The Turks had retaken most of the Cilicia region along the Mediterranean and had pushed the French out of all Turkish lands east of the Euphrates River. France had also lost its isolated Turkish holdings near the Black Sea. France was also dealing with an uprising in Syria and found itself once again fighting on two different fronts. 
France really cared more about Syria and Lebanon than Anatolia. France was also at odds with the new Greek government and did not want to maintain an alliance with them. From the French perspective, there was no benefit in continuing this war with the Turks. On October 20, 1921, French and Turkish nationalist representatives signed the Treaty of Ankara. France withdrew from the Treaty of Sevres the Allies had forced upon the puppet Ottoman government. This struck a severe blow to Lloyd George's plans for Anatolia. France renounced its claims to all territory in Anatolia and withdrew its troops to Syria. The Treaty of Ankara also discussed the disputed land known as the Sanjak of Andretta. This region was basically northwestern Syria, but it was also connected to southern Turkey. Both the French and the Turks wanted this strategic region. Alexandretta included the former Ottoman provinces of Antakya and Alexandretta. Sitting between Syria and Turkey, its inhabitants were a mixture of various ethnic groups. France agreed to give Alexandretta special status separate from the rest of Syria. France also agreed that Turkish would remain the official language of Alexandretta. Around this same time, Italy had also decided it was done with the occupation of Anatolia. Like France, Italy did not like the new Greek government and refused to work with them. Italy was also upset about never getting much support from the Allies. Furthermore, Italy was dealing with a domestic crisis as the fascist party, led by Benito Mussolini, rose to power. Hence, by the end of 1921, Mustafa Kemal and the Turkish nationalists had driven three nations out of Anatolia, Armenia, France, and Italy. All that remained were Greece and Great Britain. Turkey versus Greece The Greeks had made significant advances into Anatolia since the Treaty of Sevres in the summer of 1920. By that fall, they occupied nearly half of western Anatolia and all of Thrace. Greece had defeated the Turkish nationalists in a few key battles and were now closing in on Angora, Mustafa Kemal's headquarters. And then the strangest thing happened. On September 30, 1920, a monkey bit King Alexander, the king of Greece. The wound got infected and he died a month later. Alexander was replaced by his father, King Constantine, who was seen by many to be pro-German since his wife was Prussian. A few weeks later, national elections in Greece brought in a new prime minister. Eleftherios Venizelos, the outgoing prime minister, had guided Greece throughout most of the Great War. His replacement, Demetrios Gunaris, had favored neutrality and opposed getting involved in the war in the first place. With the pro-German Constantine on the throne and the anti-war Gunaris heading the government, France and Italy did not want to continue working with Greece. From their perspective, these two men were at least partially responsible for the war by either supporting Germany or enabling its aggression. Either way, France and Italy did not believe Constantine and Gunaris deserved to benefit from their sacrifice. Besides, they did not really care for Lloyd George's egotistical policies in Anatolia anyway. 
France and Italy stopped working with Greece and began mending ties with Mustafa Kemal, leading to their eventual withdrawal from Anatolia. Meanwhile, Lloyd George was still determined to remove Muslim and Turkish identity from Western Anatolia and replace it with Greek culture. To further this endeavor, he encouraged a new Greek offensive intended to break the backs of the Turkish nationalists. By this time, Lloyd George and his cabinet were acting almost entirely alone. The British House of Commons, the British War Office, and the British Foreign Office all opposed his plans. In February 1921, Turkish forces ambushed a Greek reconnaissance unit in western Anatolia. The Greeks drove the Turks off with relative ease. This boosted Greek confidence, leading them to believe the Turks would be easy to beat. That same month, Allied officials met with a delegation of Mustafa Kemal's representatives in London. Representatives for Greece were also at that same meeting. Somehow, the Turks and the Greeks left the meeting with completely opposite ideas. The Turks were encouraged by the conciliatory nature of France and Italy. However, Greece was also encouraged by Lloyd George's unwavering support. Hence, the Turkish nationalists felt they could continue resisting the Greeks, while the Greeks felt they would inevitably defeat the nationalists and hold on to Smyrna. In the summer of 1921, Greece launched a major offensive on the Turkish nationalists. In July 1921, they captured the city of Eskishahir and were now only 116 miles from Ankara. Mustafa Kemal pulled his troops back to the Sakarya River, just 50 miles from Ankara. He positioned his troops on the hills looking down on the river. The Greek troops began to slowly advance on the Sakarya River. They were so full of confidence they invited British observers to join the celebrations when they inevitably captured the city. The Greeks crossed the river and began fighting Kamal's troops on the nearby hills. And for a brief moment, it looked like the Greeks might be victorious as they captured the high ground. But then, on September 14th, Turkish cavalry ambushed the Greeks. The Greek forces retreated back down the hill, across the river, and all the way back to Eskishahir. Whatever momentum the Greeks had, it was gone now. The campaign was a complete disaster, and the Allies wanted no part of it. France and Italy, who were already coming to terms with the Turks anyway, washed their hands of the matter. Lloyd George could do nothing more than encourage Greece to stay the course. The British people were tiring of his wild adventures in Anatolia and did not want to sacrifice their young men to save the Greeks. Besides, Great Britain was drowning in war debt and its military was stretched thin across the Middle East and Asia. With few options available, King Constantine of Greece made a dangerous gamble. He moved several units of Greek troops from Anatolia, repositioning them in Thrace. This gave the impression he intended to invade Istanbul. The king hoped this threat would force the Allies to intervene. But Constantine had overplayed his hand. The Allies did not respond as he'd hoped. And now, with fewer Greek troops in western Anatolia, Mustafa Kemal had the advantage. 
On August 26, 1922, the Turkish nationalists went on the move, launching a ferocious offensive on the Greeks in western Anatolia. Before long, the Greeks were in full retreat. On September 9, 1922, the nationalists recaptured Smyrna, or Izmir as it's known in Turkish. The Christian Greek inhabitants of Izmir, many of whom moved to Anatolia during the Greek occupation, fled before the approaching Turkish soldiers. Thousands were evacuated by Allied ships. Mustafa Kemal and his Turkish nationalists now controlled nearly all of Anatolia. They had taken eastern Anatolia from the Armenians. They had taken southern Anatolia from the French and Italians. And now they had taken western Anatolia from the Greeks. All that was left was the Dardanelles and Thrace. The Shanak Crisis The Greeks still occupied a good portion of Thrace, the European part of Turkey. And British soldiers occupied Istanbul and the Dardanelles. As Mustafa Kemal's forces headed north, a showdown was inevitable. British Prime Minister Lloyd George vowed to fight the Turks to the bitter end. Great Britain had suffered a humiliating loss at the Dardanelles during the Great War. Now that it was under British occupation, he promised he'd never let the Turks have it back. With war looming, the British cabinet called on its dominions for support. The British Crown Dominions of Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Canada, and Newfoundland could easily supply millions of troops. However, with the exception of Newfoundland, all of the Dominions refused to support Lloyd George. They had just suffered through four years of horrific warfare and were not about to be dragged into another one. Humbled by this rebuff, Lloyd George and Winston Churchill begged the Dominions to reconsider. They released statements warning of what might happen if Muslims learned to stand up to the West. They warned Italy and France this would encourage Muslims in their colonial lands to rise up against them as well. Nonetheless, Italy, France, and the Dominions refused to get involved. On September 23, 1922, the Turks arrived at a small town on the Dardanelles called Shanukale. They stood in formation facing the British troops. The only thing separating the two sides was the barbed wire fence of the British encampment. Mustafa Kemal did not want a war with Britain either. He ordered his men to turn their rifles around, facing away from the British soldiers. This was meant to show that even though the Turks were not going to back down, they were not going to attack first either. The British soldiers were also under orders not to fight unless attacked first. For nearly a week, the two sides faced off against each other across the barbed wire fence. Hoping to scare the Turks, British leadership ordered the local commander in the Dardanelles to give Mustafa Kemal an ultimatum. But the local commander refused to comply. His men were outnumbered, and he could see the Turks were trying to go about this as peacefully as possible. He ignored the higher-ups and opened negotiations with Mustafa Kemal. 
On October 11, 1922, in the seaside town of Mudania, on the southern coast of the Sea of Marmara, an armistice was signed, bringing the crisis to an end. Everyone breathed a sigh of relief. War had been averted. In addition to the Dardanelles, the armistice also recognized Turkish claims to Thrace. This delegitimized Greece's occupation, whose troops had to withdraw to their side of the Maritza River. There were still many other things to work out, but those would be dealt with in a future agreement. All that mattered now was that Turkey was whole again. The Aftermath of Shanak It is interesting how seemingly small events can have major consequences. Even though no shots were fired during the Shanak crisis, many lives were changed forever. The British public was fed up with Lloyd George. His maniacal plan to remake the Middle East had almost led them into war again. He resigned 11 days after the armistice. But the biggest upheaval was in Greece. Greece sacrificed a lot when they joined the war on the side of the Allies. They lost over 5,000 soldiers in the war. Then they lost thousands more during the occupation of Anatolia. And at the end of it all, they had little to show for it. Greece did acquire some territory from Bulgaria and a few more islands in the Aegean Sea. But like Italy, Greece did not get nearly as much as they had hoped for. Great Britain and France were the only Allied powers to significantly benefit from the war. In September 1922, the Greek military overthrew its government. The disgraced King Constantine fled to Italy, abdicating the throne to his son. The military dissolved the government and arrested Prime Minister Dimitrios Gounaris and five other political leaders. All six men were tried, found guilty, and sentenced to death. As they stood before the firing squad, Dimitrios Gunaris refused to put on a blindfold, preferring to look his executioners in the eye. The Republic of Turkey Turkey was free. Mustafa Kemal, the unofficial leader of this new Turkey, immediately began reshaping the country to his liking. He started at the top. On November 1, 1922, barely a month after the Mudanya armistice, Kemal abolished the Ottoman Sultanate. This ended the political dynasty of the Osmanlu family and the Ottoman Empire. Sultan Mehmed VI, who had collaborated with the British, sold out his country to foreign invaders and was willing to let them rip Anatolia apart, was deposed and sent into exile on November 17th. His cousin, Abdul-Majid took his place as the new caliph. But Abdul-Majid was not the Ottoman Sultan. He was not the head of state, and he was not part of the government. As caliph, Abdul-Majid was still the spiritual leader of the Muslim world, but he was only a figurehead. The real power and authority in Turkey was with Mustafa Kemal. On July 24, 1923, Mustafa Kemal signed the Treaty of Lausanne in Lausanne, Switzerland. 
This new agreement with the Allies reversed most of the punitive measures of the Treaty of Sevres the Ottoman Sultan had signed back in 1920. The Treaty of Lausanne established much of the modern borders of what is now the Republic of Turkey. The Dardanelles and the Bosporus Straits were to remain demilitarized, though Turkey was allowed to use them for military purposes if war broke out. The treaty also allowed a population transfer between Turkey and Greece. 600,000 Greek Muslims left Greece and resettled in Turkey. Likewise, 1.2 million Turkish Christians left Turkey and resettled in Greece. The Treaty of Lausanne finally brought World War I to an end for Turkey. From the start of the war to the Treaty of Lausanne, an estimated 20% of the population of Anatolia was killed and another 10% was displaced. However, Armenians made up a good portion of those numbers. What happened in the Balkans was equally horrifying. Nearly 27% of the Balkan Muslim population was killed during this same period. 60% of all Balkan Muslims relocated to Turkey or other parts of the world. The Muslim population in the Balkans has never recovered. Ataturk The changes Mustafa Kemal brought to Turkey went much further and deeper than simply ending the monarchy. He would fundamentally change the nation and the people of Turkey forever. Kemal made his revolutionary headquarters Angora, or Ankara as it's now known, his new capital. The caliph, who remained in Istanbul, no longer had easy access to the levers of government. Two weeks later, on October 29, 1923, Turkey declared itself a republic. Mustafa Kemal, the man who saved Turkey from annihilation, was given the title Ataturk, or Father of the Turks. He was also elected Turkey's first president and was named president for life. With Turkey firmly in his hands, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk took the country in a new, ultra-secular direction. He began by abolishing the caliphate on March 3, 1924. There has not been a legitimate Islamic caliphate since then. Abdul-Majid and the Ottoman family were sent into exile where they would remain for decades. Female members of the Osmanlu family, as they became known, were finally allowed to return in 1951. Male members would not be allowed back until 1973. With the caliphate abolished and the Ottoman family in exile, Kemal Ataturk launched a severe secularization program in Turkey. This program was strict and thorough. Sheikhul Islam, the highest religious office in the nation, was abolished. Religious courts were shut down. Islamic schools and Sufi lodges were closed. The legal code, which had already been secularized a great deal by the Young Turks, was completely revamped. All aspects of Islamic law were removed and replaced with secular laws based on the Swiss Civic Code. All religious functions, endowments, and offices were placed under the state's authority. This meant all imams, Islamic scholars, and Islamic teachers were now state employees. 
the Constitution was amended to remove Islam as the state religion. Polygamy was banned. Even the Adhan was banned unless it was called in the Turkish language. He emphasized Western and traditional Turkish culture, but anything remotely Arabic was removed. The Turkish language, which had always been written in Arabic letters, was now written using the Latin alphabet. Arabic and Persian words were purged from the Turkish language. It was forbidden to teach Arabic in schools, and European languages were taught instead. Western-style hats replaced the traditional Ottoman fez. Laws were passed abolishing the traditional Islamic naming convention and replaced with the European first-name-surname structure we're all familiar with. Sunday replaced Friday as the weekly day of rest. These strict policies shaped the modern Republic of Turkey. Westerners often praise Kemal Ataturk as an enlightened leader, and in many respects, he was. But he ruled his country with an iron fist and did not tolerate opposition. The only political party allowed in Kemal's Turkey was the Republican People's Party, which he controlled. He briefly allowed two other parties, one called the Liberal Party and another called the Progressive Party, but both were eventually banned. The Republican People's Party controlled just about every aspect of government and public life, strictly enforcing Kemal's secularist policies for decades. Mustafa Kemal died on November 10, 1938. But his right-hand man, Ismet Inonu, and the Republican People's Party made sure his policies lived on. An example of this can be seen in the 1950s. Adnan Menderes became the new prime minister when his Democratic Party won control of the government. Prime Minister Menderes tried to reverse some of the extreme secular policies of Ataturk, allowing the Adhan to be called in Arabic again and reopening several mosques. But in 1960, he was overthrown in a military coup, then tried and hanged. In 1997, the military overthrew the government again when Prime Minister Nekmetin Erbakan was accused of political Islam and forced to resign. Fortunately, Erbakan was not executed, though he was imprisoned and banned from politics. Many of these secular policies are still in place to this day. However, some of them have since been reversed under the administration of President Erdogan. Turkey after the Treaty of Lausanne The Treaty of Lausanne went a long way in mending the friction between Turkey and the Allies. But there were still many disputes that would not be resolved for several years. Within a decade, however, most of the borders between Turkey and its neighbors would be properly defined. In 1926, Turkey gave up its claim to Mosul. In 1932, Turkey and Iran settled on their final borders. In 1934, Turkey signed the Balkan Pact defining the borders between Turkey, Greece, Yugoslavia, and Romania. In 1937, Turkey signed the Sa'ad Abad Non-Aggression Pact with Iran, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Alexandretta 
As mentioned previously, there had been some conflict between France and Mustafa Kemal regarding the Sanjak of Alexandretta. This is the coastal region of the Mediterranean Sea where Anatolia meets the Levant. The main problem was that Alexandretta held equally large populations of both Arabs and Turks. The Arabs wanted Alexandretta to become part of Syria, while the Turks wanted it to become part of Turkey. Tensions rose as the Syrian Arabs demanded more independence from France, prompting fears within the Turkish community of Alexandretta. In 1936, Mustafa Kemal referred the matter to the League of Nations to decide. In 1938, Alexandretta became briefly independent and was known as the Republic of Hatay. A referendum was held the following year to determine if this Republic of Hatay would remain independent or become part of Syria or become part of Turkey. The results of the referendum indicated Hatay wanted to join Turkey, though Arabs in the region claimed the election was rigged. On July 7, 1939, Hatay, or Alexandretta, was fully annexed by Turkey. Iraqi Independence Back in episode 3 of this series, we discussed how the British staged Faisal's rise to become king of Iraq in 1921. The British wanted an Arab they could trust and control as the face of authority while they ran Iraq from the shadows. However, King Faisal began demanding independence shortly after taking the throne. Faisal wanted to end Britain's mandate on Iraq and be treated as an independent nation. This sparked several months of negotiations culminating in the Anglo-Iraqi Treaty of October 1922. This agreement gave Iraq nominal independence with Britain controlling its military and foreign affairs. Many Iraqis disagreed with this new relationship, but the British did not care. Lloyd George suspected Iraq had untapped oil reserves, particularly in the Mosul region. He did not want to leave Iraq just to have Faisal sign big oil contracts with the French or the Americans. This forced Great Britain to deal with another one of its many conflicting and overlapping wartime promises. Mosul was mostly Kurdish, and Lloyd George had promised to carve out a homeland for them called Kurdistan. This proposed nation was supposed to lie somewhere between southern Turkey and northern Iraq. But many things had changed since then. The British wanted to prop up their fake king of Iraq, which conflicted with the idea of a Kurdish republic. Then, the Turkish nationalists drove the foreign occupiers out of Anatolia, ruining any chance of carving a Kurdish state out of Turkey. In June 1922, the Kurds revolted against Faisal and the British and declared their own state. But within two years, the revolt was put down and the idea of Kurdistan never came to fruition. The Iraqi Hashemite Monarchy In the summer of 1924, a new Iraqi constitution was drafted, thereby establishing the country as a parliamentary democracy with a constitutional monarchy. 
In 1925, King Faisal granted all oil rights in Iraq to the British-owned Iraq Petroleum Company for 75 years. Two years later, after digging several wells in and around Mosul, the IPC finally struck gold. Black gold, that is. On October 14, 1927, crude oil gushed into the air at Baba Gorgor, just north of Kirkuk, about 80 miles south of Mosul. This was the first oil field discovered in Iraq. Baba Gorgor would remain the largest oil field in the world for nearly two decades. Needless to say, this discovery changed the Middle East forever. On June 30, 1930, Iraq and Great Britain signed another treaty setting a timetable for full independence. The British would be allowed to keep their military bases and oil company in Iraq. Both of these would come in handy when they went to war against Germany later in the decade. On October 3, 1932, the British mandate officially ended and Iraq was admitted to the League of Nations. But not everyone was happy about this. The Kurds, still upset about not getting their own country, revolted again in 1932. Working together, the Iraqis and the British put this rebellion down. The following year, Iraqi Assyrian Christians also rebelled, demanding their own country. The Iraqi military crushed this uprising as well. King Faisal I of Iraq died in 1933 and was succeeded by his son, Ghazi. Less than two years later, King Ghazi was killed in a car accident and the crown passed to his four-year-old son, Faisal II. In the next episode, we'll catch up with events in the rest of Arabia, including Transjordan, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, and the Hejaz. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash Middle East to find other episodes in this series. To learn more about the life of the last messenger of God, subscribe to our other show, The Prophet Muhammad Podcast. If you enjoyed these podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and review and share with your friends and family. The Islamic History Podcast is 100% listener-supported. You can support our work and get access to exclusive content by becoming a member of Islamic History Exclusive. Visit islamichistoryx.com for more information. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium shows. You can also make a one-time donation by visiting islamichistorypodcast.com slash donate or send a tip via Cash App using the cash tag Islamic History. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.
Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. In this series, we are going over the life of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, known to the West as Saladin. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the launching of the Third Crusade. But before we get into that, let's begin with a recap of where we are so far. After defeating the Franks at the Battle of Hattin, Salahuddin begins consolidating Palestine. The only city he does not take is Tyre, an island off the coast of Lebanon. In September 1187, Salahuddin finally captures Jerusalem after a brief siege. Meanwhile, Conrad of Montferrat becomes the ruler of Tyre and reorganizes its defenses. Salahuddin attempts to besiege Tyre, but it ends in failure. And with that, let's discuss Europe's reaction to Salahuddin's victories in Palestine. European Reaction Hoshis, the Archbishop of Tyre, fled Palestine and returned to Europe just a little after the Battle of Hattin. He arrived in Rome in October 1187 and informed Pope Urban III about the defeat. The elderly pope was so shocked that he immediately had a heart attack and died. From Rome, Hoshis continued to travel throughout Europe, spreading both lies and the truth about Salahuddin's conquests in Outremer. He created elaborate engravings depicting Salahuddin and his Muslim soldiers desecrating Christian sites and holy places. To Hoshis' delight, the Christians of Europe began to move towards action against Salahuddin. For years, the Franks of Utremer had depended on Europe for a continuous supply of money and material. But more importantly, they needed men. They warned the monarchs of Europe that they were outnumbered and in hostile territory in the Middle East. Without a steady supply of European settlers to Outremer, they would eventually be overrun by the Muslims. But the Christians of Europe ignored these warnings. Their enthusiasm for crusading began to wane after the failure of the Second Crusade in 1147. 